Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This week's guest on the Playmakers Playbook, the former Wallaby captain who's now in charge of Australia's bid for the 2027 Rugby World Cup. In his playing days and then during two decades as a commentator, he was controversial and outspoken. He took enjoyment in ruffling feathers and was always willing to challenge the norm. He's also been a leader in business and charity work, but landing a Rugby World Cup, that might be his biggest achievement yet. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, protecting their people and projects through adaptability and proactive safety. Hello, I'm Nick McCarvel, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you're looking to become a better leader in business or sport or even at home with the family, this podcast is for you. Phil Kearns is heading to the UK for a series of meetings with heavyweights of world rugby, trying to secure a World Cup which would inject billions into the Australian economy and be a financial saviour for the sport here in Australia. Today, we talk about the pillars of leadership, including the need to be yourself and be genuine and to have courage be prepared to take a risk. Kearns, talks about the moments he's done that. One cost him the Wallaby captaincy, but he wouldn't have it any other way. To begin, we're going all the way back to 1991. And that's it! The final whistle goes. Australia said from day one they weren't coming here to run second, and they've taken the trophy. Nick Farr-Jones, the Australian captain... The moment he has been working and waiting for. They weren't modest when they arrived. They set their stall out, saying that's what we've come for. The 1991 Rugby World Cup final, the first of two World Cup wins for Phil Kearns. Kearns, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. The Playmakers Playbook. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks, Nick. It's a good name, isn't it? It is a good name. Um, usually with these podcasts, I sort of sit down and I try and map out a, a basic uh, framework for the discussion. Didn't quite know where to start today. Wallaby captain, philanthropist, father, husband, businessman, board director, executive director of Australia's bid for the 2027 Rugby World Cup. We'll get to that. Um, Elton John impersonator. I didn't know, <laughs> didn't know whether I should, should go there or not. You've got a bit going on though, haven't you? You're, you're a busy boy. Oh, and not not just Elton John. It's it's you know Eddie Vedder, and they're, they're, there's plenty of others. <laughs> um, a lot of things in your life, though, have been helped by obviously what you achieved as a Wallaby. So we're going to start there. Um, Ninety-one in particular, exactly thirty years ago, uh, this year. So many leaders in that team. Um, so it wasn't just the captain Nick Far Jones, was it? No, it wasn't, and it was some something that. Bob Dwyer used to talk about quite a quite a bit as, you know, it's just not the bloke with the C next to his name. And Bob always wanted 
a large number of leaders in, in his team. And, um, you know, we had some crackers there and all, all different styles of leadership. But, you know, Simon Poitovan was in the side and and uh, Michael Liner, um, Campo in his own inimitable style was sort of a leader out on the wing as well and certainly had influence over the side. Uh, and then you had some up-and-coming leaders and, you know, I'll, I'll put a, a, a little and horn in that realm as well and a young bloke called Eels was on the way through and, and uh, so there were a number of leaders in that side. So when you say different style of leaders, what what do you mean by, like, what, what are the different styles of, of leader? Well, if you look at a Michael Liner, for example, and we go go back to that classic match, the quarterfinal against Ireland, and Nick Farr-Jones was off the field at the time uh, with, an, with an injury. Noddy took over as vice-captain. And when Ireland scored that try with two minutes to go, um, Noddy, and I'll, I'll remember the words like it was yesterday, he said, forwards get us Phil's position and backs will do the rest. That was all he said. And, you know, from and it was very calm, and we kicked off and the forwards put pressure on the Irish fullback at the time who sprayed into the touch. We then won the line out, so we did our job. Um, and the backs did the rest. <laughs> scored a try in the corner. Not he scored it himself. And uh, speaking to Nick Farr-Jones after that and, and, and since, he said there's no way that would have been his approach. You know, Nick said he would have been yelling and screaming and, you know, urgency and all that sort of stuff. Whereas Noddy was calm and that's sort of different leadership styles. And both of them work at different times. Um, and, you know, Porto was completely different as well. What 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 sort of leader was he? Well, Porto was you, you go get him, attack him, uh, lead from the front sort of guy. He, he was a, aggressive and... You know, if there was a tackle to be made, if there was someone to be hit, that that was Poito, and you'd follow him into battle. And so that was his leadership style. You know, Noddy was never going to be the confrontational, you know, slam into a six-foot-eight bloke and sit him on his backside. That was more Poito. Um, so all, all very relevant and all styles of leadership required at different times in a match. Being part of that team kind of helps set you up. Gives you a big start in life, doesn't it? If you have... Uh, success? Uh, do you do you agree with that? Yeah, to- totally. Um, uh, but it's it's not just success that makes you failure makes you makes you as as well. Um, but but certainly, uh, you know, it's one of the great things. It, it's not just about being a wallaby; it's being part of rugby. Um, that uh, people are there to help you, and you you. But you can use those moments in your life as a springboard to to bigger things um but that's the nature of our game another world cup win in 99 although you were injured for the final there uh you won the Bledisloe four times 67 tests all up 10 as captain and 11 year wallaby career what are the the greatest lessons that being a successful wallaby taught you i'm talking about kind of pillars of of leadership yeah, I could be talking for an hour on, on this um, because there are so many aspects to it. Uh, I think a big part of it is is humility. Um, rugby is a game that's built on respect and, um, 
you know, respect for all others. And uh, our game is built on that because there's a spot in our game, in our teams, for everyone, no matter what shape or size or physical ability or speed or um, background or preference, there's a spot for you and you're accepted into our team. And I think that's a great lesson in life. Um, and whether you're leading a team or a, a company or a board or whatever it may be, um, that's important to, to take all those aspects of those people's lives into your own. Is it right that Bob Dwyer, when he handed you the captaincy, said that he liked what you did on the field, but he also liked what you did off the field and didn't want you to change? That, that kind of feeds into that humility because a lot of leaders are a handed responsibility, handed leadership, and they do change. Yeah, and, and that was, you know, there's an, a number of messages and Bob's been a great mentor in my life um, and still is. And, uh, you know, there are some things that, that he sort of said which still resonate with me today and that was one of them. Um, you know, he put me in that position because of uh, who I was uh, and who I am and he didn't want me to change. And he said, this is just be yourself. And uh, because people figure out fakes pretty quickly and if you're not being true to yourself, then they pick up on that. Uh, so, so that's been a really, a really big lesson and, um, and, and I've tried to, to coach other people in, in that just to just be yourself. If you're a 100% prick, then be a prick. <laughs> um, at least people will know that you're genuine and, and they'll respond to that. Um, but if you're not that, just be be what you are. And this is another thing, and I, I remember um, Bob telling us before we went into the 19, I think it was a 92 Bledisloe series, um, or 93, they, <laughs> I forget which one, but it was a three-test series. And, and before that, um, Bob said to us, um, uh, before we ran onto the field, he said, just do your job and do it well. Don't look at the scoreboard. If you do your job, you'll look up at the end of 80 minutes and you'll see that Australia's got more points than New Zealand. And that, at the end of the day, is all that matters. That you, If it's one point, then then great. If you've got more points than them, you'll win the game. And uh, and that sort of resonates in the business world as well and in, in other fields. If, if you're so worried about the scoreboard, your share price, um, uh, your revenue, whatever it is, you sometimes forget what gets you there in the first place um and what gets you there is doing your job and and staying focused on that um and at the end of that series we did look up at the school board and we had one um and so i think that's really important and particularly in particularly in business when everything is so numbers focused um that it's actually looking at the numbers isn't what gets you there it's it's the process what about courage yeah, courage is important, and hopefully, if you if you're a good coach or a good good leader, you can see those people that are prepared to take a risk, um, and risk taking is part of it. Um, you know, if you look at someone, well, David Campisi is a great example who took probably more risks on a rugby field than than most. Uh, you know, you look at the pass that he did for Hora and to score in that World Cup semi against New Zealand. Um, you know, through to let's call it a failure, um, against the British Lions when he threw that pass to Greg Martin, which was the wrong pass to make, uh, and the British Lions scored. So you've got from glory to the gutter. Um, but Campo was prepared to take a risk, and, and that's what you know a lot of coaches um, 
loved about him was that that ability to take a risk and back himself. How does that feed into business in particular? Well, in in business, in fact, taking that risk is probably a little easier because you have a lot more time to analyse and assess and you have more data behind it rather than a split-second decision to throw a pass over your shoulder. Um, So in business, it's a little bit easier, but but sometimes, well, definitely financially, the stakes are much higher. Um, But you can't evolve as a company and grow as a company and grow your people unless you're prepared to take risks. Um, so as a leader, you have to back those risks, um, you know, within within reason. You know, if there's some uh, sound discussion and rationale behind it and you can see it and you can, um, you can minimise those risks, then great, you've got to go for it and give people their head. You've had a really successful career in business um, and and I know that a couple of places you've gone to have undergone change and that's been uh, it's been important for you then to to build teams how do you how do you build a team in a business is it similar to building a team a rugby team or is it is there something different about it or are the basics the same no, I think the basics are the same um, you in, in business you've got to have your finance and your HR and your marketing and your salespeople and and uh, so they've all got different skills just like a front rower has got different skills to a second rower um, and and the backs are completely different as well the, the you know the, the backs are your salespeople and your front rowers are your operational sort of people you know you're identifying those those skills first of all and then because uh, you got to have them and then the second thing is are they good people? Um, you know, the most one of the most important jobs of, of a CEO is to find the next CEO. Um, so literally, from the minute you're starting that job, you're hunting around within the organisation to see the person that's going to take over from you, whether that be in the short term or the longer term. And, and ideally, you've identified two or three that, you know, um, you pick the second one, takes your job, and then that third one comes through after them. Uh, so um, they're, they're, they're very similar and, you know, those attributes, you know, particularly around honesty are, are critical. So, so first of all, you know, finding the people with the skills and equally as important is finding good people. You talked about uh, great leaders within the Wallabies setup that you played in. Uh, you talked about them earlier. What about some great corporate leaders in Australia and and why? Like, who who are the genuinely progressive uh, corporate leaders in Australia, and why? That, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, I'm I'm lucky to to know a bunch of people in that world. You know, I look at someone like Bob Mansfield, uh, who, who's just a terrific guy, who um, was the um, first CEO of McDonald's in Australia, and then went over to run Optus, started Optus, and then became chairman of Telstra. And Bob is all about people and the people in his organisation and how how important they are. Bob Bob's a really smart dude outside of all that stuff as well. Um, but his his um, focus on people and just walking around the office and getting to know people he, that that genuine nature of his is uh, is terrific. Another guy called David Shane, um, who's who's just written a book actually called The Dumbest Bloke in the Room. Um, now, he was definitely not the dumbest bloke in the room, but he sort of says he was. And he was a guy with just tremendous judgment 
um, and his judgment also was based around people and picking the right people, knowing how to reward them, knowing how to look after them. Um, you know, in situations where someone might have a sick kid or a sick mum or a sick whatever, um, Dave's in, in incredibly compassionate and incredibly generous um, and incredibly honest with his, with his people, whether that honesty being sending a perceived negative message or, or a positive message. It was wonderful. So that there are a bunch of those uh, guys around there, and I'll, I'll probably offend someone but not, by, by not mentioning, mentioning them. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I look... Um, you know, it's someone like Joe Hockey, whilst, whilst not a, a business leader as such, he is now, but he wasn't then. He was leading, or one of the people leading a nation. And Joe is an incredibly down-to-earth bloke and just have the, has the power of his convictions and, and uh, sees, sees an argument, understands the reason for it, um, puts good logic, re- research, but good logic behind why it's being done. He's a big one for the why. And and delivers and so there, I'm I'm really lucky to count people like that as as my mates and there are lots of others, um, and and who I can go to for advice, uh, because their message is powerful and their success is strong. What about um, as a, a captain or or a coach uh, or a or a manager if you're asking your team to uh, to adopt a strategy. Is it important to give people uh, context around why why yeah. the strategy? That, that's the critical word is why, and uh, you know to to be given the reason why you're doing things is, is really important uh, because often it doesn't make sense and you don't like doing things that are that are different um, because everyone gets in their comfort zone and don't really like getting out of it um, and. You know, the classic example that I use was, again, Bob Dwyer telling us that we should go on a 10K run at least once, probably twice a week. Now, you know, <laughs> being when I was playing 17 stone, um, running was just not my go. I hated it. Like road running at 17 stone hurts your knees. It's a long way. It takes time. It hurts you know all that sort of stuff that would explain the knee replacements and, I guess. yeah that's right <laughs> and and uh but as soon as bob said i've noticed the all blacks are tiring and if we do this 10k run in the last 10 minutes of the game we're going to be fitter than them and we're going to win i'll do 10 10k runs like but in context to beat new zealand i'm going to do that um so I did, and but it was only because he put that in context about otherwise I'd be going, forget it, Bob, I'll go for a swim instead. Um, and that that's the same in anything. Um, any business decision you've got to make, um, okay, why are we doing this? What's it going to do for the company or the team or the individuals? Why? Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Any other key philosophies? Uh, 
I, I, th- I think honesty is the you know a, a really critical one. Um, you know, being honest with the team around you makes them also makes you and them uh, accountable. Um, you know, if someone's not up to the job, um, they often know they're not up to the job and they're struggling in their role. And when you when you come to them and have that discussion, it's of, it's of often a massive relief to them um, as well as you. And that might mean a change in role, or it might be, mean they leave the co- leave the company. Um, uh, but I think that that honesty is 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 really important to get that accountability. And and the other thing I think is is uh, feedback, and that feedback needs to be constant. I think most companies they tend to have a yearly or half yearly review of your role and and how you're going. Um, you know, as a rugby player or, or or any sort of athlete, you get that feedback and accountability every time you perform every time you play every week where there's a WRL after your team's name um, you get that feedback and athletes really I think embrace that because uh, they want to improve and it's th- the same in business you know if, if you go out in a sales call with someone uh, with your boss and you do the wrong thing in that sales call uh Six months later, you have your annual review and your boss says to you, remember that call we did at Fred Nurks and Co. six months ago and you said that? Well, that was the wrong thing to do. And you think, well, hang on. I've just said the same thing for the last six months. <laughs> so I've done the wrong thing for six months. Why didn't you tell me that six months ago? And I could have been better for, yeah. for the last six months. So giving that constant feedback is really important. Um, I've noticed that with... Uh, with young sports people transitioning out of sport into the media, you know, and w- when they start commentating, and, and you've you've done this, and they just don't get that constant. You know, they go from an environment of having daily, weekly feedback to nothing. Yeah, and and that's 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 hard for athletes because they constantly want that. Uh, it's not it's not being needy. It's just wanting to improve, um, and and that's an important part of their life. Uh, you know, I, and I think the other thing when you when you've got athletes that are transitioning uh, in different areas, you know, um, I remember speaking to some of the, the swimmers, and uh, w- when you're in the swimming environment, there's only a couple of things which are really important to you: it's distance and time. And however, when you get into the real world, you got lots of other variables out there that you've got to handle, and and that's often uh, that's often hard to do. Again, same, I'll use the swimming analogy because I, I love swimming myself. Um, that you get that constant feedback every time you swim a race, you get that time. And you know whether it's better or worse than your fastest. And so it, it's, a, it's a really important factor. So when you think about all those things that you learn uh, as, a, as firstly a, a wallaby under great captains and then captaining the country yourself, you you probably almost don't realise that you apply them day to day. I mean, here we are, you know, sitting in your backyard, you've got your beautiful family, you've probably applied a lot of the things that you learnt as a wallaby day to day with your family and then you, you head into business, same sort of thing. Spot on. And, and you often don't realise you're doing it. I think as you get older, you actually do realise that you are um, become a little more self-aware 
um, with what you're doing. And, you know, I certainly don't try and burden my kids with, with you know, lessons from the field. Um, <laughs> although, I, you know, you, you do... Um, you do give them some advice, but quite often you don't put them in the context of, you know, when I was playing, so, you know, you don't do that sort of stuff. But, you know, there are a couple of things, um, you know, that you also, as you get older, think back on your own childhood and your own parents and, and what they did and, and what you feel is important. You know, for, for my parents, um, my dad never laced on a rugby boot in his life. And I am so grateful that that was what that was the fact. He never um, pushed or poked or prodded or um, you know forced me to go out there and train. He was just there to support me. He came and watched the games. He you know he, even after a game he wouldn't talk to me too much. He said he'd say that was a good game or Fred played well or whatever it might be. But that was sort of the extent of it. So you know he he um, I guess in indirectly empowered me to make my own decisions and and drive my own career rather than him forcing it you know we have all seen kids um being driven by their parents in any you know swimming tennis rugby whatever it might be in all sports um and that outcome's often not that great what about the importance of vision uh in leadership and i want to talk about the balmoral burn which you know bring me up to speed how much money have you raised now uh, we're at about $35 million, um Over how many Balmoral years? Burn. Oh, well, it's sort of 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> we were hoping to have the 20th Balmoral Burn two years ago, but we've had it cancelled twice because of COVID. Uh, and you, you, you had a vision for for that. I mean, maybe not at the start, but you quickly realised the difference that you could make. I did have a vision for it, to, to be honest. I thought, but I only thought, um, you know, I could picture it in my mind and what it was going to look like on the day. Um, but it was only supposed to be a one-off, <laughs> and and it's sort of after twenty, um, uh, you know, the vision is certainly more than I expected it to be. Um, uh, but I did picture in my mind, you know, hundreds of people running up this hill and having a good time and being in a community event, um, and and how we we're going to do it, uh, and certainly one of the the critical things. Um, was to find the people that could help me put it together. Um, and in fact, those people now have essentially taken it over and are running it. And and I do far less than I used to do, uh, to which I'm grateful. Uh, but, um, but there was certainly a vision there, and it was just a matter of doing it. And to be able to raise that much money to buy equipment for hospitals around the country that's got to be a good feeling i know that you you know you don't probably give yourself a pat on the back too much but it's got to be a good feeling it, it, it's it's a great feeling um and and what what part of that great feeling is how um which is what i was hoping for is how much the community has, has embraced it and you know so we we raise money to buy hospital equipment for children's hospitals around the country and um you know, you get to realise how many people have been touched by doctors and nurses and their, their kids that have been in these situations, whether it be accidents or illness, um, and they are in these unfortunate situations. And people that have had both good and bad results from being in that uh, are so um, connected 
to it and and uh, uh, and embrace it. And that's that's been really gratifying to see how the community has embraced it. Yeah, it's outstanding. Um, you talked about courage before. The courage of conviction in knowing what's right and wrong. Um, you uh, put a lot on the line last year when you attempted to, to lead change at Rugby Australia. Um, you might have even lost some skin in terms of reputation, maybe even some friendships along the way. But you were so uh, determined, you had such a, a clear vision about what was right, what needed to change. That That willingness to cop some damage along the way for what you believe is right. How important is that in leadership? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is important. Um, there are sacrifices in, in everything that that you do. I mean, if we go back even further, Nick, to World Rugby Corporation, uh, I was Wallaby captain when we went professional. And I, I was told... You know, if you go down this path, you'll never captain Australia again, um, and that proved to be true. <laughs> um, however, it, it was the right thing for the game and the players. So the, the Wallaby captain is absolutely there first and foremost for his team and his players, or her, in the case of Wallaroos, um, and and that's the number one priority. You're you're not there for the administration of the game. You are there for your players. And the administration probably comes in number two, or your rugby supporters probably come in number two, and then the administration three. Um, uh, ideally, all those things would be working together. Um, but as I said before, not everyone likes change and will fight change. Um, but th- th- there was a great saying by um, a businessman called Jack Welsh, who ran Jack General Electric, and he said, accept reality as it is, not as it was or you wish it were. Uh, and that is so true. And back in those days when we did go professionalism, we would all love our game to still be amateur and have those principles. Like, I'd love that. That'd be fantastic. But it wasn't reality. You know, when they started asking us to be playing 13 tests a year and you're going into two weeks preparation before that and then there's a week in between each test that you've got to be training, you're out of action for, you know, probably 20 weeks a year and mm. that's not including Super Rugby that came into being. It just wasn't reality anymore. So, um, yeah, I, I put a lot on on the line for that. But I think the game's in a better place, and and the game is bigger than all of us. Uh, same in the situation, as you say, last year with Australian rugby, we were in a horrible, horrible place, and um, you know, it's it's no secret that I had aspiration of being the CEO of of, of Australian rugby. I ran for that role. Um, but there's, uh, by doing what I did, I knew there was absolutely no way <laughs> that I would ever get that job. Um, and uh, But the right thing for rugby was to go down that path. And I think after you see four Wallaby test wins in a row and an administration that's cut costs is turning the corner and putting the grassroots to number one that hopefully will win a Rugby World Cup here in 2027... We're getting back on the right track. Perfect segue. Rugby World Cup 2027. So you're in charge of that bid and uh, you're heading off um, very shortly to uh, Europe to try and, you know, massage the process. What actually happens and, and uh, you know, we're going to get it? 
Yeah, well, let's start off. I'm just part of the team that's that's making up the bid. I've got a fancy title, um, but I've got a really terrific team of people around us. And when, when I say team of people, we've got a, a, a bid board, uh, advisory board that is second to none. Um, and there's only a small team. There's about five or six of us um, that is working really hard to make this thing happen. What the process is, I've got no clue. <laughs> you probably I mean should. No, I mean that in uh, in in terms of what we're doing in Australia, we're, we've been, you know, we've been uh, right on point. Um, we have to work very closely with all the state unions. We work closely with the state governments. Uh, we work closely with the federal government um, to make this happen. Uh, and then we're working with World Rugby on the other side. Um, there's a lot of technical stuff that goes on in the background. We've we've identified nearly 80, 80 uh, potential training venues right around the country. Um, we're working and talking to people in the South Pacific. So all, all that is terrific. Um, the process bit that I don't get is what then happens at World Rugby. Um, because I, I think that is... Um, and, and we work with World Rugby really, really closely and we work with them really well. Um but when you've got 52 people uh, voting, <laughs> who knows how that could happen? It has changed a little bit, hasn't it? There's a, prefer, a preferred uh, candidate now rather than the way it's always worked. It's along the lines of the Olympic selection now, isn't it? Well, we're hoping that's, right. that's where we'll get to. Our, our trip in November is to confirm that and hopefully Australia will be given preferred status for 2027 so so that's that's the the little bit of the unknown uh we we're we're pretty confident and we hear from world rugby that that's the path that they think that should be heading down um but it is again it's a change it's very different to what's happened in the past um it's worked for the olympic movement um you know john coates is on our advisory board and uh he he says it's worked for the olympic movement um it's ripped a whole bunch of cost um, out of out of well, for, for countries having to put these massive bid campaigns together, uh, so uh, you know that that's really the thing that we're fighting for when we go over there. Um, so as, as I say, you know, we I, I do know what's gone on in in the whole parts of things, but when it comes to a vote at World Rugby, anything could happen. What would it mean uh, for Australia to? to get it. I mean, you know, people who aren't rugby fans go, oh, that'd be pretty cool. I remember 03, that was a bit of fun. But essentially, when you when you drill down a bit further, what would it mean? I mean, for, for, the, for the Australian economy, it'll mean over $2.6 billion of spending coming to this, this country, um, well over $500 million in trade and investment, 240,000 tourists coming into Australia. Uh, it, it's a big deal for our economy as we are departing coming out of this COVID environment and and a great boost it's the third biggest sporting event in the world so to have that here is is enormous and I think it'll mean a lot for our South Pacific uh, neighbours as well Uh, it'll mean a lot for hopefully rural and and uh, rural Australia as we've identified training venues out and around everywhere from Tasmania through to Darwin Um, We've we've identified places that can can be part of this World Cup, um, and then financially, if, if we have a financial financially successful World Cup, um, which I think we will, 
it, it means potentially securing the financial future of Australian rugby for a long, long time. Um, so it, it's certainly benefit to the nation, but certainly benefit to Australian rugby as well. So that's, uh, that's the wider context. Bring it back to you for a moment. What would it mean, given your history in the game, what would it mean to you personally to lead a successful bid? Um, that's a good question. I actually haven't thought about, <laughs> haven't thought about that uh, a lot. Um, you know, after, and you said the numbers before, 67 tests and, and being the Australian captain uh, and being lucky enough to play um, in in, success, in, a, in a really successful era. Um, and you touched on it up front. I'm intrinsically linked to the future and, and benefit of Australian rugby. It's been a game that's been wonderful to me um, with so many opportunities that I've been able to get from the game. Um, so I guess for me, and I've never thought about this, the, the, the benefit to me is that the, the game grows. Um, that's, that's, that's the key. You know, i am been lucky enough, and pity it's been through COVID, but uh, I had, um, we, we, we had things set up for me to go to South Australia and, and watch the grand final down there of the club teams and award the trophies afterwards and same in Tasmania, coaching clinics in Queens, all that sort of stuff, which is all cancelled because of COVID and I was um, slightly devastated by that. But we have been able to get around and, you know, I've been out to Cootamundra and opened up the, the grandstand and and uh, new change room facilities out there. And just to be able to see the game thrive in places like that is, is just fantastic. Um, so what do I get out of it? I guess I get the enjoyment of seeing the game thrive. Kernsey, good luck with that. And thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Great to be on the Playmakers Playbook. <laughs> Phil Kearns on the Playmakers Playbook. And in the interests of transparency, I should tell you, I was lucky enough to work with Kernsey for more than a decade. He is a good human. And if we can land that World Cup, it'll be a game changer for Australian rugby and a good thing for all Australians. You can register your support at australia2027.rugby. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by Build Corp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Love you to give us a five-star rating and word of mouth's important. If you liked it, please tell a friend. Join me next time on the Playmakers Playbook. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.